Hey everyone, this is Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand. This is John Lee Dumas, the founder and host of Entrepreneurs on Fire. This is Tracy Ibarra. I'm an executive solutions at Dell Technologies. This is Travis Chappell, founder of Build Your Network. If you are wanting to learn how to embrace change, to navigate through disruption as a leader, then listen to the Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast. The Leadership is Changing podcast with my good friend, my very good friend, Dennis Giannoutsos. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change. This is taking your leadership to another level by finding the balance between executive excellence and personal well-being through stories that inspire real change. It's time to adapt in our fast-moving world when leadership is changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsos. I came to nonprofit leadership somewhat late in life. I had a whole career in first in media and then in software and, and marketing of software. And But through that whole time, from the time that I graduated college, I was always interested in in women's place in the world and particularly in the workforce. And it was something that I was very mindful of. And I sometimes tell people, if you had told me as, a, as an American back in 1992, 93, as I was getting ready to graduate from university, that when I woke up in 2020, marriage equality would be the law of the land in the United States, but that women would still only make up about, depending on which stats you look at, you know, 10 to 15% of top leadership jobs at corporations, I would think you had gotten it backward, right? I would think you had gotten it exactly backward because it, would, it wouldn't have occurred to me in the 90s that we would make that much progress in marriage equality. I'm certainly happy that we did. I'm overjoyed that we did. But it would have shocked me back in the 90s to, to think that we would have made so little progress, especially given uh, looking around at my classmates, and it was men and women and men and women, and we were all equal and we were doing our thing. So I've always been interested in what we can do to advance women's leadership and and bring all the voices to the table. So, yeah, okay, that's great. That's interesting. And, and how did you get into leadership? So, I, you know, I gotten I left media, and partly I left media because I felt my career there was stalling. The New York media landscape can be a tough place, and I didn't really fit the the mold of what uh, a lot of the companies were looking for. It just wasn't the right fit for me as a for my career. And so as I got into into tech, um, and this is the late 90s, so there was a lot happening in New York um, in technology, particularly in marketing and advertising technology. So I got into a marketing software company and I just, I always wanted to do big, important things. And I, you know, for, for better or worse, whether it's immodest of me, I just always felt like I, I knew the way, like, come follow me. I, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I, I really hungered for, for opportunities to show that and to do that. And, and the company that I went to was a place where I was able to do that and, and move into ever more more expensive roles. And to the point that I had become the VP of corporate marketing. And when the CEO of that company, Matt Blumberg, told me he wanted to found a nonprofit, 
because he had uh, his HR team had started doing this program internally, but he felt like there was an opportunity to expand it by working with other companies. My reaction to that was like, oh, let me run that. <laughs> um, having never worked in a nonprofit before, that was certainly probably a little bit of hubris on my part, but I felt like so the the cause spoke to me and I felt like I could, this was a good idea and it was an idea that I could make happen and that if I did, it would be great. So that's how I got into this particular, particular leadership spot that I sit in at the moment. Yeah. And when you said the cause spoke to you, I, I find that for, for me at times when something speaks to me uh, and it's the right thing, it gets louder and louder and louder. Did you, did you experience that at all? Well, so what I would say is when I came back from maternity leave the first time back in 2007, I, you know, I sort of had this moment where I was like, oh, this is part of what holds women back. And it's not the kids. They're fine, right? The kids are, are adorable, but it's all the the things around, the social things that are around mothers and the way we think about mothers in the workforce, the way we think about mothers at home, the patterns my husband and I were falling into. Like there were all these things that I was like, oh, I think I get it now. Like I think I see. And even looking around, not only in my own company, but other companies. And one thing I started noticing is that I had noticed for a long time, as I said, that there weren't a lot of women at the table, at the senior table, at the executive table. But then you start to look a little closer and you realize, oh, wait, not only are there not a lot of women, but the women who are there are are single or if they're married, they don't have children, right? That there's something, right? That there's a, there's another layer there. And they're like, oh, if that if, if having kids is going to be an impediment for, for women to get to this, that's going to be a problem unless we want to stop growing as a species. Like that's going to be a problem. That's not, that's, that's, that's not going to work out so great. So, so I had started noticing several years before, and I came back to work um, within a few months of both of my children and I enjoyed working and I enjoyed being a working mom, but I understood quite clearly how someone might make the choice or be pushed to make the choice to step out for longer and then seeing how hard it could be for someone to get back and recognizing that like, oh, this is an impediment. And if I can be part of solving that and bringing women back into the workforce and helping them to advance their careers, I want to do that. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Okay, cool. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's really important for us to know that too and, and for you to share those experiences with us. Here's a question for you, which is, you know, there could be several people, but I'm going to ask, you know, who is your favorite leader? Now, this person could be alive or from history, and why? So I um, I thought about this a lot today. This was a question I sort of contemplated on, and I'm going to go with Melinda Gates. I read her memoir at the end of last year, which suddenly feels like it was a very, very, very long time ago, although it was only about nine months ago. Um, I read it at the, uh, the very end of last year and over the Christmas holidays, and I so I'd always been impressed with the Gates Foundation generally, right? Sort of their the way they were giving away money and the way they were using that money to try to advance different causes. But reading her memoir, first of all, really showed me, you know, Bill gets a lot of credit for all this stuff, but she is doing a lot of the work behind the scenes and the work that she was doing behind the scenes was not only quite interesting and impactful on a global level, but she was starting to make connections and see 
the way women's empowerment, or let me put it a different way, she was seeing the way women's lack of empowerment holds back entire countries and entire societies and mm. making the connection between empowering women and empowering families and and cities and states and countries and on. And the way that she has gone about doing that, and, and I think she... Um, has done an amazing job. Partly, I also admire what she has done by using both philanthropic power and also investment power, right? So if you look at the different things she's involved in, there's things that are 100% philanthropic, right? They're giving away money to do things like end malaria and uh, and other kinds of things around health and education around the world. But then they're also doing things like investing in in companies, in businesses, in women, in a, in a for-profit way. So she's using that treasure that she has that she has amassed with her, along with her husband, in in all the ways that it can be used. So I'm very impressed with her and the way she and then the way she talks about motherhood and her own experiences of that and what that meant for her as a professional, what she saw at Microsoft as a professional, and how she now thinks about about women in leadership and women in the workforce. I think I think she really sets an example. That's great. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm really interested in what you just said there as well about, you know, Bill Gates does get a lot of credit. And then, you know, you have people like Melinda behind him who's doing a lot behind the background. And I think that's whether it's a male or female that gets a lot of credit, there's always somebody else behind that actually helps and supports him a lot. And I think that's really important that we actually do recognize those, those others as well, which is really important. Thank you, Dennis. Delighted to be here and uh, chuffed for you with episode 50. What an honor. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's a real pleasure. Thank you. So it's uh, it's been really, really cool. Adrian, so I've given a, given a brief introduction on, on you. Would you like to share a little bit more about your background, please? Yeah, thank you. Well, uh, you know, I was born in the uh, United Kingdom, kind of had my formative years growing up in Southeast Asia in Singapore, uh, a real dream time that was as a youngster in the 80s, and then really moved to Australia in my teens. So I think in terms of my identity, having been through high school in Australia, university, um, I feel very much like an Australian. I think I've still call Sydney home whilst I reside out here in the Bay Area in California. And my own studies took me into behavioral sciences psychology. So I guess that's my degree. Uh, but I've always had a passion for people and why we relate the way that we do, why we make the decisions that we do, kind of what drives us. And yet, despite that passion, I found myself stumbling into work with Compact Computers back in 99. And that was after a little bit of a stint with PepsiCo in uh, customer service and then performance and training. And I always thought these little two-year stints just to get some experience and a little bit of exposure. And I'd probably <laughs> pop out and work out what I really wanted to do with my life. But it, you know, the ball just kept rolling and I enjoyed every every moment. I think beyond that little uh, background piece, I am, uh, you know, I, I guess a person of the planet, as I like to say. I'm a quarter Chinese, a quarter Indian and half English. So naturally a fan of diversity and the strength that it does bring, and, and I guess all the, the cultural nuances that are so so gorgeous, basically. And uh, yes, a family, so wife, two girls, and uh, you know that's probably what matters most to me, in addition to supporting and encouraging people to, in essence, be their best selves. Excellent. It sounds like a, you know, a real rich career that you've led and, and, and so forth in different countries and regions around the world. How did you actually get into leadership? You know, it kind of started back at, at high school. You know, during the school process, we had a cadet corps, sort of like play army, 
I can say that respectfully. I mean, there was rank that you could aspire to attain. I figured I'd give that a shot and aspire to be a lance corporal of a section. Um, and then actually was entrusted to be a corporal. So that sort of surprised me to begin with. And it, it relished that year. It was great. You know, looking after seven people, camping, first aid, snake bite treatments, bivouacs and more. And I began to enjoy just that accountability to help others enjoy the experience. I think that was at its core. Um, and then that kind of continued um, in terms of being entrusted with more and more seniority, more responsibilities to lead platoons, companies, and so forth. And then similarly towards the end of school, I was entrusted with school captaincy. And I think at the time, I was a reluctant receiver of these responsibilities, if you like. But what I also appreciated in terms of my identity was the capacity to kind of close my eyes, take a breath, and then step into it. And then really relish that responsibility. But again, most importantly, this. Um, accountability to help others get the most out of their experiences, be it at school or in the context of the year, what was being experienced, uh, the cadet corps, football teams and more. And so that was really my first exposure to it. Um, and I maybe thought it was a, a one and done. I did that and let's get out there and live life. I was into music, playing in bands. I never aspired to be a leader per se. But as I journeyed into compact computers in particular um, mm -hmm. and an opportunity came up to lead a team, I, 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 you know, I actually didn't put my hand up. And uh, I was questioned about that from a leader at the time, who to this day I have such significant respect for. And she simply said, why didn't you? And I said, well, I've only been on the job for three months. And there's still lots for me to learn in my current responsibilities. I feel the time was right. And she said, but Adrian, there was a couple of other people that put up their hands that started at the same time you did. I was like, really? Oh, my goodness. You know, it would have been a lost opportunity for me not to at least have helped others more broadly. And that was yeah. a lesson learned. Don't wait. You know, um, raise your hand reach out and at least express your interest or let people know that you have a desire to make a broader difference and to help. And so the next time a role came around, of course, I raised my hand and I was given that accountability to lead a team. I was very young. I was in my kind of early 20s, 24, maybe 25. And uh, the team, of course, were invariably in their late 20s, early 30s. And so there was an immediate natural tension point in terms of, well, hang on a second, who are you? <laughs> tell me what to do. And uh, that's what I realized pretty quickly. Well, hang on. I'm not actually here to tell you what to do. I'm here to help you succeed. You know, my job mm. is to make sure you have all the tools and the support, the backing. you got a place to soundboard, to ideate a little. And uh, I'm someone that will, you know, make sure I'm here for you. And that began to soften that tension and build some trust. And uh, I began to realize maybe that was my little formula for success, ensuring people understand how much I care. And then I'm basically here, my job, my paid job is to make sure they succeed fundamentally. And I've, in essence, carried that through into every, I guess, accountability I've been entrusted with. So that's how it began once I, once I stepped into a, a corporate context, basically. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. And, and really quite interesting, because um, I've got a couple of questions here. One is, uh, how many snake bite treatments did you have to do? <laughs> Fortunately, none in the real world, yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah, that's good. So <laughs> I... I I quite like what you talked about closing your eyes and taking a breath and then stepping into that responsibility, which is really good. But I think the important thing here is as well is that um, the two questions I've got, one is raising your hand and stepping up and doing that. How, how important is that for leaders to make sure that they're doing that on a regular basis? You know, I, I think it's, it's very important because if you don't express what it is that you want, um, mm -hmm. or you don't help other, others see what you have the potential to do or how you'd like to contribute – then you could miss out on that opportunity. And I think that's potentially a risk whether it's in terms of your own career development or in terms of your ability to garner feedback because you might miss out and be curious as to why. And then you have an opportunity to get guidance in terms of what that why might be. And it could be 
a lack of experience. It could be they're not they're quite the right timing. Who knows? But I think, again, between the feedback you garner or the responsibility you could be entrusted with, it's going to be a gain for you. So I do think it's important for people to raise their hand and, uh, yeah. and clearly state what it is they feel they have the capacity to do. It doesn't yeah. always have to be about leadership. It could be to take on a new project, sure. take a risk and go build some new product or, or system. Um, and that's what really grows us. It's those experiences ultimately. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and so the second question there was uh, based on what you're saying, but just before was that there seems to be leaders who do struggle and sometimes they call it the imposter syndrome. They, mm-hmm. they sort of struggle in the fact that they've been promoted to the role and there are people there who may be more experienced in tenure in the way of being in that team a lot longer or the organization, yeah. or they may be a more of a, la- a bigger age, if I can put it that way, than the actual leader itself. And that leader doesn't have to be like a new frontline leader. It could be right through to the executive levels as yeah. well. So so what's what's one or two things you would say to somebody like that? Um, and I know your, your approach was, you know, I'm here to help you succeed, but would, would there be anything else that you would offer up to anyone else to help them succeed as in that transition of actually taking on that new role? Yeah, yeah, I got some fun stories here. Based on my own experiences, you know, I feel that I suffer from imposter syndrome, you know, to an mm. extent, and I've, I've found good coping mechanisms to work through it. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, being entrusted with responsibilities, whether it was at school, and, and I guess, you know, how you interpret your environment shapes a lot of your thinking over time. And I know back yep. then I was like, who, me, what, a, a corporal? I wanted a lance corporal. Oh, wow. I didn't expect that. That's nice. Let me see what I can now do. And it just continued into my career um, in Compaq and HP where, you know, through various promotions or being entrusted with new uh, responsibilities, I was always a little surprised. And again, relative to a lot of my peers, I was relatively young, you know, 24, 25, 26. I think I was leading a go-to-market group at 28. Most of my peers were in their 50s. And I kept saying, gosh, you know, I have to pedal fast to do this. Um, I am not good enough. I don't have enough skills. I'm having to double down all the time. And uh, on the outside, I was cool and calm. But on the inside, I was working super hard. And I sat down with a mentor one day and they hit me right between the eyes because I was babbling on about all this responsibility at such a young age and, you know, how am I going to do it? And I'm pedaling so fast. And they simply said two things. Well, how old are you? And uh, I think at the time of this conversation, I just turned 30. I'd just become a director. And she said, well, what have you really done? And I said, oh, what do you mean? I've done all these amazing things. And she said, I know a lot of self-made millionaires who are 30. I know a lot of CEOs who have their own businesses who are 30. I know a lot of people that have, what have you actually done? I was like, oh, my goodness. And in an instant, I thought, you have got to get over yourself, Adrian. <laughs> what you're really being entrusted with, it's pretty simple. It's quite straightforward. Why are you spending all this time worrying about whether you can or can't do something? So that helped in a way. It was a bit of tough love, you could say. I got a little sweaty at the time when that feedback was given to me. But it did create a shift that elevated my sense of um, certainty around getting engaged and spending less time worrying about whether I can or can't. Yeah. And then equally, around the same time, particularly as I started taking on more executive accountabilities, I was also told, you know, Adrian, the person that has entrusted you with this title or this scope or this budget, they've done that because they believe you can do it. They mm. wouldn't have given you that responsibility if they didn't think you could do it. So why would you waste another second worrying about whether you can or can't? Get on with it and enjoy the process. And that was the ultimate shifter because I was like, oh, my goodness, that's right. They wouldn't have promoted me if they didn't think I had a chance of succeeding. So let me not second guess myself for a second longer. Let's roll up sleeves, 
get engaged, link arms with the team, with my peers, and go make this happen. And then the joy started to come back into it. You know, I was always energetic, always enthusiastic, but the genuine joy uh, showed up. And then again, that made it easier. And I think that made me a more authentic and more compelling leader too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leadership is Changing with your host, Dennis Giannoutsas. Each week, we and our guests provide information and insights through exploring leading change, inspiring executives and leaders to adapt and lead a bigger game in a fast-moving world. 